We are in Philippians chapter 2. If you notice, we are taking a break for those who are regular attenders here from our preeminent series as we've been going through the book of Colossians. And we are pausing and reflecting on the Christmas story. And I have chosen for a text today, a text that is probably not uh, the usual Christmas text. Normally we'd go through Matthew chapter 1. Or Luke uh, chapters 1 or chapter 2 as we look into Mary or perhaps the shepherds or the wise men. My hope and goal today is to take a 30,000 foot viewpoint and to see the story from perhaps a, a greater, more uh, a theological angle, if you will, as we delve into this very crucial text that helps elaborate and expand. You know, it's one of those things when you have your phone or your tablet and you can make it bigger. That's what I want to do today. I want to focus on this text and expand it out that we can really see who Christ is as we talk about the Christmas story. And and Christmas has a lot of meanings for several of us, either good memories or bad. Uh, for myself, I, I can picture being um, setting up the Christmas tree with my grandfather, which, you know, wasn't a real tree. Uh, you just put the pieces together and hook them in. Did you ever have one of those trees? And you'd build it layer by layer by layer by layer. And then the one part on top, you'd stick it in. And, and I can remember having candy canes or chocolate-covered cherries. And my grandmother would always buy me socks. I don't know why, but she always got me socks for Christmas. And, and, and as a kid, you never wanted clothes. You know, it's the clothes. You're like, thank you, and you toss it. Christmas has a lot of memories for us. It could be movies. It could be songs. It could be uh, memories or ghosts of Christmas past, as we recall uh, people that have now gone on, or family members that we no longer see, or uh, or an old house we perhaps lived in with a certain smell. It conjures many different images in our mind when we talk about the story of Christmas. But what I'd like to pause today is really focus on the true Christmas story. The real story, the reason why we have Christmas and what it involves truly for us. Because it, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think about the Christmas story. Uh, I I have many different, again, images that come into my mind. But this story is unlike any other story. Because it affects all of us. I mean, stories are powerful things. That's why we have, like, awards for movies and great scripts and stories that so affect and capture our heart. But this story is unlike any other. It has the elements that captures our imagination. It focuses our intellect. And it sharpens our concentration. We have stories about heroes. We have stories about great tragedies. Or, or there are dramas that really seize us. But this story is about an undercover hero who gave up more than we know to seize more than we could ever imagine. This story affects every cell of our lives. It captures us whether we are single or married, male or female, black or white, brown, red, or yellow. It affects every country, people group, language, and strata of society. It affects everything. We are and all that we do. And I want us to look at this amazing story and see what God has for us today. But before that, let's pray. Ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, speak to us. Help us to see the Christmas story anew once again, that we might go forth changed and transformed to the glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So let's jump right into this text. The Apostle Paul is writing to a letter to the church of Philippi. And he begins by encouraging the church to adopt the mind of Christ, to think right thoughts that enable the body of Christ to not only survive but thrive in the world. And it's, he wants them to think and act like Christ did within this matrix of human relationships. Now notice verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now I want us to, to start off. Paul uses that title intentionally. He uses the term and title Christ. We think of his, that being his name. His name is Jesus Christ. No. Uh, his name was probably, I mean it's Jesus obviously, Yeshua. Um, but oftentimes you had the name like Bar, which meant son of. So I would be Travis Bar George. My father's name was George. So Travis Bar George would be my name. And Jesus was probably considered, even though Joseph was his earthly father, from all intents and purposes, they probably called him Jesus Bar Joseph. So Christ wasn't his last name, right? He didn't have that on his driver's license. It's a title that is given to him. It means Christos. And it means anointed one. And it's a transliteration of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah, that he is God's Messiah. So the Greeks are writing that he is God's Messiah. So Paul is giving him his title first. This is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Christos Jesu. This is Christ Jesus. It's about him. He starts off talking about him. And he goes on in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God. Now, the word form there is morphe and refers to the outward display of the inner reality or substance. Here it refers to the outward display of his glory as the image of the Father. Now, when you couple it with the the next Greek word, which is um, hyparchon, which means to be or exist, we have the idea of Jesus existing as God. Now, this was a brand new concept for the Jews. I mean, they understood there was a Messiah who was to come. They didn't know that he was going to be necessarily God incarnate. And people didn't know what to do. Matter of fact, when Christianity developed as a sect, it was called a sect of Judaism. It was called the way. And Jews didn't know what to do with this because on one level, they're calling Jesus as Lord, yet they're still identifying as Jews because Christians weren't necessarily a a separate element as of yet. They were called Christians, but it was seen to be just a sect of Judaism. So they're understanding who is Christ, how is he the Lord, is, who is he? And Paul is saying in this text that Jesus is God. And he is God. And this blew the minds of the people that are there because they're saying, wait a minute, how can he be God? God is, is, is amazing. See, when we look at this Christmas story, we have to understand who we're talking about. That we're talking about one who is in his very nature, God. That's what Paul says. This is where I actually like the NIV more than I like the English Standard Version translation, which says, he being in the very nature, God. Jesus did not become God. Let me, let me dismiss any notion of this right away. For those who come from uh, Jehovah's Witness backgrounds or Mormons or one, uh, different, different cultic groups or sects, they say that Jesus became God. No, he was always God. He was bef- God before he entered into our humanity, and he will be God at the end of time. He did not become God. He is not a God. He has always been God. There was never a time when he was not God. As John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or Colossians chapter 2, verse 9-10, through 10, that we'll be studying um, in the next couple months. Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule 
and authority. Now, what does this mean for us? How does this apply to us? What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, and what does this have to do with the Christmas story? Everything. Because the Christmas story is not about a Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot model air rifle. It's not about who's going to lead Santa's sleigh. It's not about Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, nor is it about what I want for Christmas. It's not about an angel getting its wings. That's still bad theology, by the way. It is not about a Christmas vacation or a snowman Maine Frosty or, this is for my, for my, my uh, good friend, who, it's not about singing loud for all to hear, for those who are of the elfin nature. Uh, it is about something much greater. It's about an incomprehensible deity. Now, you can write that down. I know, let me spell the word for you. Incomprehensible. I-N-C-O-M-P-R-E-H-E-N-S-I-B-L-E. Got it? All right. Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Without the ability to comprehend. And you want to know the word deity, just so you know, it's D-E-I-T-Y. Not D-I-E, because God can't die. D-E-I, not D-I-E. Incomprehensible deity. Too often we fail to grasp God's transcendence, meaning that God is beyond our ability to fathom. In our minds, we have God as this enigmatic shadow or this father figure with a big long beard or perhaps a, a policeman that's ready to club us when we're doing something wrong. I mean, for whatever reason, we have this image of God just out to get us to stop us from having fun. But that's a very poor image of God. God is beyond our ability to fathom. And often our vision of God is inaccurate, distorted, and very small. He is the one true God, the self-existent God. The God who is the very root and definition of good, perfection, truth, beauty, and benevolence. He is holy, completely separate and set apart. He is transcendent in that he is beyond us, but he is eminent in that he is near us. He is spirit. He is completely sovereign. Nothing happens without his allowance. He is God only wise, sufficient in and of himself, in need of nothing. We all need something. We need food. We need water. We need rest. We need shelter. God needs none of those things. He is complete and content in and of himself. He is the only being who is truly and absolutely free, completely free, to do whatever he wants to do. And God, not because of anything lacking on his part, decided to create us for his joy. We exist entirely at his pleasure. He made man. He did it for the glory of his name. God is God and beyond us. Now, he's also triune. He is one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons. And if we are to begin to grasp the Christmas story, we need to understand that it involves the God who exists as Trinity. That's letter A in your notes. Exists, E-X-I-S-T-S, as Trinity. T-R-I-N-I-T-Y. God exists as Trinity. Now, for many of us, we have no clue even about the Trinity. We believe it. We say it. We have no idea how it affects any part of our lives. So we just kind of let it go. 
And functionally, we are modalists. I mean, we just look at God one mode. We, we're got it. We just don't understand necessarily who he is, but we believe it and we're all good. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Trinity because this is very important and has huge ramifications for the rest of the stuff that I'm talking about. And it affects all of our human relationships. It affects marriages. It affects churches. It affects everything because we are made in the very image of God. And for us to truly ungrasp what God is showing to us in the Christmas story, we need to really see who he is in all of his glory. Now, we find, uh, you will not find the word Trinity in Scripture, as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Oneness Pentecostals like to point out to you. You can't find the word Trinity in Scripture. That's true. That is very, very true, but the truth is there. It might just like being in a stadium. I'm in a stadium. I don't see the word water fountain everywhere, anywhere, but I can sure find one. Okay? I don't need to necessarily find a, a, a toilet. I don't see a word toilet. I see bathroom, and the concept I know is there. It's the same in Scripture. The word Trinity is not in Scripture, but the truth of Trinity is there and is readily apparent. Now, the word Trinity comes from the Latin word trinitas, meaning triad, which is from the Latin word trinus and means threefold. It is used to describe the being of God. God is Trinity in that he subsists or exists as three persons but one God. God is one in essence and three in person. The Trinity is impossible to illustrate without drifting into some type of heterodoxy, which is wrong, superfluous, uh, incorrect teaching, or heresy. Same thing. So, I won't even try to give you an illustration. Because everyone you've ever heard, I guarantee, is wrong in one way, shape, or form. But, what I want to show you is that God is the same in substance, meaning in essence, God is this. But yet in subsistence, in his real being, that's what subsistence means, in existence, they are different. Yet they are, they are three persons. Now, we have to understand the word person. The, the word person, when we use that referring to God, it has different understanding than we use today. Like, for, the word, for example, what is the word that all girls use to describe everything under the sun, if it looks nice? Yeah, cute. Cute. Did you know that if you were in Elizabethan English, you were using Elizabethan English, and you were to say a girl was cute, you, it was a tremendous insult to her because it meant bow-legged. Yeah, so you're so cute. You know? You know? It, 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 language is fluid, and it's always changing over time. I mean, think about it. Think about words we use today that had a total different meaning 10 years ago. When I'd say, close all the windows so it gets better. Ten years ago, you're like, oh, close all the windows. Depending on, if you're in front of a computer, that has a totally different connotation. Right? We have all of these different words and things, and language is fluid and it's constantly shifting. Think of the word scan for a moment. The word scan. Scan, we think of, uh, right? Just kind of breeze it over. Scan actually meant, originally meant to examine intently. So meaning shifts through cultures and through language. Language is a very fluid thing. Ask anybody who's a non-native speaker, and they will gladly tell you that, how messed up our English language is. It's really, really messed up. But we need to understand the term person. It's not, we use it as a very, referring to individuality. Here it's understanding of differentiation, and it's a legal term that was first used by the church theologian Tertullian, who was a lawyer. He uses the term to describe the differences in the very persons of God. So he's employing this term persons, and it actually comes from the Latin word personas. And this personas is based on a Greek understanding of a drama. 
And an actor in a Greek drama would stand up in front, and actors played multiple roles when, roles when a drama was going on. And they had, um, they would literally have, they play one character and then they play another one. I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about this, and he talks about being a play uh, called J.B., and it was in the 1960s, and the actor had been the guy that had played Sherlock Holmes way back in the day, Basil something or other. I can't remember his name. Someone else might know it. But Rathbone, thank you. Basil Rathbone had played this part, and he was playing in this play of Job. He played both God and Satan in the same play. And, and Sproul literally was sitting in right front row center. Sproul is a theologian, for those who don't know. And he uh, has this mask on, and he's playing the devil. And as he switches characters, he takes that mask off and puts the other one on right in front of everybody. So in Italy, that's where we get the idea, by the way, of the two drama masks. They're actually called personae. And it has the happy and sad mask because they would be switching characters throughout it. And see, that terminology, Tertullian is adopting. And we have to be very careful with the illustration because it has some serious uh, wrong understandings. But we get an idea of why that term, person, is being used. Now, it's not a scriptural term. But it's a term that has been imported on it in church history to help describe and understand the the being of God. So we have God, who is one God, revealing himself in three personas, persons, if you will. Now, what we need to understand about that is that God is one God, and all three of the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit... Not Mary. I know we think that's silly, but if you interact with anybody who is from a Muslim background, they think that we worship three gods. That's tritheistic. We don't. We have one God reveals himself in three persons, and it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not Mary. Also, many Muslims think that we worship Mary, and that's because of their inexperience with Catholicism. So all three of these members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are, they all possess, possess equality. So it involves this God who possesses, that's letter B in your notes, possesses, P-O-S-S-E-S-S-E-S, equality, E-Q-U-A-L-I-T-Y. So God exists as Trinity, and they all possess equality. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and the three are all one God together. Not three gods, three persons. Now, The Father is God, just as the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit is not lesser than the Father, and the Son is not lesser than the Father. The Father is not lesser than the Son or the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit, three make one God. Now, the Father, though, is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. That's called modalism. Okay? I'm giving you some church history. I know that might seem way over your head, but just stay with me, and it's going to make sense here in a moment. Because we need to understand that. Because when you encounter Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, they'll say the Father is the Son, the Father is the Spirit, the Father is uh, the Father. So, but all three are different. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They all possess equality. But, so they are one in essence. They're all equal. Ontologically, that's a big word. O-N-T-O-L-I-G-A-C-L-L-Y. Okay, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. So ontologically, which means God in essence is equal. In his essence, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. Functionally, they're subordinate to one another. They submit to one another. So that's letter C in your notes. It's going to make a ton of sense here in just a moment. Function subordinately in roles, meaning the Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. 
they function subordinately in roles. Subordinately. S-U-B-O-R-D-I-N-A-T-E-L-Y. Subordinately in roles. Now this becomes very important when we look at marriage. That the son has authority, and yet he functions subordinately to the father. And I like how one Christian blogger captured it. Or actually, Kathy Keller, first of all, is the wife of Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. She said this, both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority for the man, and Jesus in his sacrificial submission for the woman. Both are following Christ. Now, Luma Sims, who's a Christian blogger committed to biblical womanhood, wrote this, and I want you to listen very carefully. I don't have the quote for you. She says, as a wife, I see my role in relationship to Christ in the words of the Apostle Paul. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now notice, ontologically, in essence, men and women are equal in Christ. We're all the same without race. We're all the same no matter what our background is, poor, rich, slave, free. We are all equal in our ontology, our ontologically, our essence. We are one in Christ. Functionally, we differ. Men and women differ functionally. As a woman, she says, I already have a Jesus role. The sacrificial gifting of my submission to my husband. Should I try to grasp for his Jesus role? Should I try to swap my Jesus role for his. To what end? If Jesus being equal with God did not grasp for his equality, this is the text that we're referring to. It's going to make a whole bunch of sense in a moment. If not, then I'm sorry. If Jesus being equal with God did not grasp for his equality, but instead submitted himself to the plan and will of the Father... Should I, as my husband's equal, grasp for mine? How can that possibly transform me into the image of Christ? To understand any of our roles, we first have to understand the Godhead. The Godhead. Only then will any of this stuff make sense. Only then will it be shown that these roles are not cultural or social constructs, but part of the warp and weft of objective reality. What that means is, is when we look and understand the very persons of God, and especially how the Son is fulfilling His role, submitting to the will of the Father, coming to earth to bring about our redemption, submitting, even though He being equal with God, did not count that equality as the thing to be grasped, that He would willing to submit Himself, this picture of the incarnation of Him coming to earth, of giving His life to the point of death and death on the cross, is a picture of how we are to live as men and women, because we were created in the very image of God. So just as the son submitted to the father, we submit to one another. The wife submits to her husband. The husband is submitting to Christ and trying to live this out. Now, it, it, it transfers into a lot of other relationships, and it transfers and figures out in the church. Now, it might be beyond many of our understanding. We need, we need to continue to move on and see how this does affect us and what God has for us. Let's look back at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Morphe, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is where, again, I like the NIV a little bit better. I think it translates and captures the essence of this text better. 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Meaning, Jesus came to save us. He wasn't going to use his deity as a means of a way out or invoke special privilege, if you will. He wasn't above us. He was coming to serve us, which means that we not only see an incomprehensible deity, but we see an inscrutable, I-N-S-C-R-U-T-A-B-L-E, which means, again, without the ability to understand, humility, H-U-M-I-L-I-T-Y. Inscrutable humility. I mean, inscrutable also means impossible to understand, to interpret. That, that God, in all of his magnificence and incomprehensible nature and all that he is, would make himself flesh, assume the flesh of man, make himself susceptible to the common cold. That's, that's beyond my ability to understand. I mean, even the name of God. What are one of the names of God in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23? He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in the flesh, sitting right next to you. Imagine that for a moment. I mean, we get, I remember one time, I had a buddy of mine. This was when we were in high school, and, and uh, he, had a, he went to go see David Copperfield. You guys remember David Copperfield, the music, magician? And he was sitting there, and they had front row center seats. And his, his girlfriend was talking to him about pretty girls, and, and, he, and he's kind of listening. And, and he looks over, and as he's talking, he stares, and he can't stop staring at this girl that's next to him. And she's like, oh, come on, who are you staring at? And she leaned over, and it was the supermodel Claudia Schiffer <laughs> that he was sitting next to. And he was in awe, and she was like, well, great, there goes my night. <laughs> you know, here I thought I looked beautiful, and here the supermodel, because she was dating David Copperfield at the time, is sitting right next to my boyfriend. And it caused this, this feeling over her, like, wow, she's so amazing and so great and so beautiful. I mean, imagine God is infinitely more than that. Infinitely more. I mean, it's not even in the same, not in the same language, same planet, same solar system. That this inscrutable humility that God, being the creator of all that is, was, and ever will be, who holds, upholds the entire creation by his hand, would step into creation for you. To save you. That's, an, that's a humble, I mean, humility beyond our ability to fathom. We don't get that. How could God do that? And that is exactly what he did. This is the son who concealed his glory. That's what it means to empty himself. Not that he divested himself of his attributes, because if he did, part of him would cease to be God. That doesn't work. Emptying means of, uh, to, of no repute. It means that he was, he was emptying himself, and it doesn't mean emptied out. I mean, it does mean empty out, but it can mean without recognition, perceived as valueless. See, that's what he made. He made himself without former majesty, that we would behold him, that he veiled and cloaked, concealed his glory. He came as an undercover agent, infiltrating Satan's kingdom. He humbled himself, being born to a virgin teenager in the Middle East. He was born into the midst of a country under foreign occupation, born to a couple not yet married but betrothed, and he came in the subtlest of ways. He was born in Bethlehem. The couple had been in town, had traveled there, along with several hundred others because of a census issued by the Roman emperor. (laughs) Obviously, they didn't read about a lot of the doctor medical recommendations back then. You shouldn't travel when you're that much pregnant, right? 
I mean, you hear stories of women giving birth on airplanes or traveling at nine months. They didn't have that understanding back then, or at least they didn't care. didn't matter. So she gets ready to, to go into labor. And where does she, she is, is this child born into a palace? Born into a stable, along with farm animals. Now, I think, of, I think of how there was no majesty that we should behold him, as Isaiah says. There was no former majesty that we should behold him, that he wasn't so set apart that we would look at him in, in, in regal nature, that he came humbly as a servant for you and for me, that he came to identify with us, that he wasn't born with star power, if you will, that he came humbly. I mean, without any fanfare. I mean, there was some, but... Not according from a worldly perspective, there wasn't. You know, I, I looked up something. I was thinking of famous babies. Probably the most famous baby on the planet right now is Prince George. Prince George. Of Prince William and Duchess Kate. Okay, the kid was born in July of 2013. He's a year and a half old. I Googled him just for fun. 56,400,000 hits. He's a year and a half old. That's a lot of hits for a baby. I mean, that kid's going to be full of himself. He's got paparazzi everywhere. People are waiting outside. When is Prince George going to enter into the world? Oh, Prince George, Prince George. And, and he, I mean, he's of a, of a pretty limited kingdom. The Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, enters in. In a very unostentatious way. Very humbly. That he's a God who concealed his glory. He came... But he was still different than us. He came in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the word likeness comes from a Greek word that means the same as, but still different. See, this is where we see that he was 100% God and 100% man. He wasn't 50-50. He didn't appear as a man, but was really God. He had real flesh like we do. He had real thoughts. He was susceptible to hunger, fatigue, temptation, yet he never sinned. In other words, what he did is he assumed our identity. That's the next point, letter B. Assumed, A-S-S-U-M-E-D, identity, I-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. He assumed our identity. He put on flesh. That's what the mystery of the incarnation is. That's what's so wonderful about Christmas, the birth of hope, that we have hope. We need hope. We can't live without hope. Every one of us clings to hope. The problem is, is what is the object of our hope? What is the object of our hope? Is your ho- what is the object of your hope? That you'll have a great 401k? That my kids will love me? Maybe you're a teenager. I'll be famous. That's my hope. I'll be famous. I'll be on YouTube. Everybody can see me. I'll have everybody like me. You can have a million likes and be retweeted all that you want. Without God, you got nothing. You can have the whole world and lose your soul. You could be the best athlete on the planet. It doesn't matter. If you don't have Christ. And you might say, well, I'll take that worldly fame. I'll take this part of this glory. So eternity doesn't matter to me. Let me tell you, when you step into eternity, that's the real reality. And that will be the wake-up call. That will be where you'll stop and you'll go, why, why, why? Why, why, why? Life becomes much more precious as you get older. And I remember seeing this past week with Chris Conti. You guys remember him, the, the athlete for the Chicago Bears, 25 years old. He said he would gladly sacrifice 10 years off of his life just for a chance to play in the NFL. And I love some of these older athletes. They said, that's, that's a 25-year-old, not a 38-year-old talking. Because life is short. Our perspective changes. But see, Jesus assumes our identity. He comes along and he, he 
knows our struggles. He knows your struggles, by the way. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're going through in your marriages. He knows what you go through in your relationships. He knows what's going on in your finances. He knows everything about you. He understands it because he lived among people to feel and experience what we experience. That's another wonder of the incarnation. And we forget and keep him as a baby and forget that he grows up. We can't keep him perpetually as an infant. We have to understand that he becomes the crucified Lord of glory. He assumes our identity. And that's the next thing Paul's trying to talk about to us. Not this, that he assumed our identity, but he he took it on in an amazing way. And then he died. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he took on our penalty. He assumed our identity, and he took on our penalty. Here, he takes on our penalty, suffered our penalty. That's the next little part of your notes. Suffered, S-U-F-F-E-R-E-D, penalty, P-E-N-A-L-T-Y. He suffered our penalty. See, we can't keep him in that that little, nice little uh, manger, away in a manger, singing all these nice things about the baby Jesus. We have to understand that he becomes the suffering Lord of glory, the one who's crucified. See, C.S. Lewis used to make the, the observation. He said that we, at Christmas, we focus too much on the, the humanity and at Christmas too much on the deity. It's interesting that we should keep both intention. Remember that the, the baby becomes the crucified Lord of glory. And, I t- and I've shared this before. Only two of the Gospels, of the four Gospels, highlight the very birth of Christ. Matthew and Luke. Mark begins his Gospel with the baptism of John, and John was referring to the cosmic Christ, different perspective. And in early church history, matter of fact, early Christians didn't celebrate Christmas because many of the Roman Caesars would make their birthdays holidays, and they didn't want Jesus to be equated with a Caesar. So they didn't celebrate Christmas. Christmas wasn't a big deal to them. It was the death and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that was the big deal. And each one of the Gospels focus on the last three years of Christ's life, especially the last week of his life. And they spend an ex- extended amount of time on that, which tells you, I mean, the incarnation is huge, massive, but for the early Christians, the crucifixion, death, resurrection was the ball game. That was the main thing, that he died, was buried, and rose again. We have to remember that he suffered our penalty. He came to die our death. That's what he came to do. Your sin, my sin, required us to die and suffer the consequence for it. That we should be condemned. But Christ came so that we wouldn't have to. He took the penalty upon himself. But he had to identify with us in order for that to happen. That's why, by the way, going back to the identity, that's why when he comes to John for baptism, we've talked about this several times in here, Did he come to John to baptism? Did he have any sins that he needed to repent of? No. None. Why did he need to be baptized? He says to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he said, I have to identify with sinful man. I came to identify and experience the temptations that man experiences and yet was without sin. He felt the full weight of temptation. Now we're like, well, how could God really feel the temptation? God's not tempted by sin. How could he really feel that? It's interesting. C.S. Lewis talked about that. He says, he, says uh, he, he puts it this way, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. 
A silly idea, he goes on to say, is current that good people do not know what temptation is. You don't know what temptation is like. You're a good person. You're a goody two-shoes. You don't understand temptation. I've lived it. You don't get it. You don't get it. Lewis goes, that is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Or as Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology puts it, he says, many theologians have pointed out that, that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than those who attempt it to lift it and drop it. So any Christian who has successfully fully faced a temptation to the end knows that it is far more difficult than in giving to it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced it to the full, to the end, and triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, they were most real because he did not give in to them. See, he had to be made perfect, and that meant he had to identify with us. He took on our penalty. He was cursed on our behalf. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 22 through 23 says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became cursed so that we wouldn't be. And because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Look at verse 10 in Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what does that mean for us? It means that his that Jesus in Christ and what Christmas means is that we now have an incomparable opportunity. Incomparable opportunity. I-N-C-O-M-P-A-R-A-B-L-E. Incomparable opportunity that we can now be saved as Jesus, or as, as a, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. I'm going to give you three real quick points. We have an uh, um, incomparable opportunity. And that means, first of all, first of all, we have to understand that there is now no hint. Hint, that's the first word, hint, H-I-N-T, of condemnation. In Christ, there is no hint of condemnation. C-O-N-D-E-M-N-A-T-I-O-N. No hint of condemnation. That Christ's coming... That by him not just staying in that manger, but by dying on the cross for our sins, by living a sinless life, enabled us now to have salvation. And in Christ, there is no condemnation. That if you are in Christ, then you don't have to worry any longer. That you can be assured of your salvation. That your sins are forgiven completely. You don't have to constantly be raising your hand to receive Christ every time an invitation goes up. That he is yours now and forever. There's no hint of condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So there's no hint of condemnation. But there's also now a heavenly destination. Heavenly destination. See, heaven came down so we could go up. Christ is the reason for heaven. By the way, if you think that uh, Jesus is just one part of heaven, you're sorely mistaken. He is the very essence, the reason for what heaven is. 
And why it is heaven? Because he's there, because he's our heart's desire, because he is the greatest gift imaginable unto us, that we're in the presence of God himself, and God has enabled us to be partakers of the divine nature through Christ, that we can experience and be in the very presence of God, experiencing pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. We now have a heavenly destination, which means that in the here and now, we have hope for transformation. Hope for transformation. T-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N. There's now, see, Christ came that we might have hope. That's hope. That's, that's the birth of hope. So there's something about a baby being born that makes us all smile. There's hope in that. And, and why does that make us all smile? Why does it give us such joy to see that new life and the cooing and the moving and all the, you know? I'm amazed at my, my Jojo, my son, and how people hold him, and he stares at them, and he takes them and grabs her nose and turns it and messes with their glasses, and everybody's like, oh, how cute. You know, when you do that, you're an adult. That's assault. <laughs> Why do we let kids do that? Because there's something about them that's innocent, that's pure, that's hopeful. Christ never lost that. Hope. They have personification, the embodiment of hope itself that we no longer have to be chained to our sin, that he came to set us free, that if the Father has drawn us to the Son, that we are no eyes cast out, that we've been set free from our sin, that he's the only one that can set us free. You can't set yourself free. And you know what? You can't come to the Father. I mean, you can't come to the Son unless the Father draws you. Did you know that? How do you know the Father's drawing you? That you feel this this urge within you that you know that Christ is the Son of God and you will not have rest and peace until you put your faith and belief and trust and life in him. That's how you know the Father's drawing you. You can't have that hope for transformation on your own. No matter what Oprah or Dr. Oz says, you have no hope apart from Christ. He's the only one who can save. That's the Christmas story about an incomprehensible deity with inscrutable humility offering you an incomparable opportunity to be saved and have a relationship with him that starts now and lasts forever and will continue on in eternity for your glory, honor, and joy forevermore. And it's available to all who repent and place their faith in Christ. If the Father is drawing you, confess your sins and confess Christ as Lord and he will save you. He will forgive you your sins. He will take care of your past. He will give you peace in the present and he will give you grace for the future for his glory, honor, and your joy. Amen? Amen. Well, let's close our message time with a prayer to this wonderful, incomprehensible, transcendent yet eminent God. Father, you are the Father. You are the one for whom every family gets its name. You are the one that we come to in the majestic and awesome name of Jesus, knowing that at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, help us to understand who you are and your person and your perfections. Help us to see your purposes and hold on to your promises. Lord, help us to see you in in your amazing immensity and yet to also take rest that you are close to us very intimately. Lord, I thank you for all that you are and all that you have done and all that you want to do in our midst. You delight in taking individuals and transforming their lives, giving them hope and a purpose. And Lord, the message of Christmas, may it rest upon us 
and may it flow through us, changing us, helping us do and be the people that you want us to be for the glory and honor of your name. And may we increase in joy. May we understand and live in this peace. May we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are the God who cares, that you were the God who came near, that you were the God who sent your son to be with us. Lord, we, we rest in you, we worship you, and in this Christmas season, may we recover once again the mystery and wonder of what it is that you have done for us and what you want to do in us and through us. So Lord, for those who are going through a very difficult time and maybe they feel like this is just way over disconnected from them, may you show that you are the God who is near them in the midst of their struggle, that you are not so far above that, is you are not, that, that you aren't nearby. May they see your sufficiency. May they see your grace and your strength to help them, that they can cast their burdens upon you because you care for them. Lord, may we truly care for one another and live out this life and embody this Christmas story for the glory, honor, and praise of your holy and most precious name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.